Uh, hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation and eventually to get a job. And I am really happy today uh, to uh, be joined by a guest, uh, Professor Peter Zinneman, um, who is in the history department here at uh, UC Berkeley and also has a posting in um, South, uh, Southeast Asia Studies? The Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies, that's right. And, and has the uh, 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 great task of being the chair of our department that right now. also right. Um, he's had a, uh, a really extensive career, has written tons of books, uh, 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 mentored many graduate students, taught many courses. Uh, his books include uh, The Colonial Bastille. You've also been an editor of a, of a major journal as well. This is correct, the Journal of Vietnamese Studies. So we have the real deal, an actual historian. We have a, a historian who's gone through the process and who uh, 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 is actually doing the work of a historian with us today. Uh, so it's a, a special topic. Um, and uh, Professor Zinneman specializes in Vietnamese history. Um, so I, I, have, I have a big question for you. Mm -hmm. um, when I think of Vietnam and Vietnamese history, I just have... The image of the Vietnam War in my head, and that image mostly—I'm really embarrassed to admit—mostly just comes from movies and mm -hmm, TV. Mm -hmm. Like I have like images of Charlie, you know, Charlie Don't Surf and mm -hmm. uh, 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 a Full Metal Jacket, and that's kind of where my knowledge of, of of Vietnam begins and ends. And I know that in my own field, we've done in the past like 20 years a lot of revision of the of the accepted history. And I wonder, how has that changed in Vietnamese history? Is, is, has the, the, the reception of the Vietnam War changed in a really big way in your field? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great and big, juicy, meaty question um, to start off with, Brandon. Um, yeah, the um, Vietnam War, as you um, observe, has a really big place in American popular culture. You know, there's millions of movies about the Vietnam War. There's, um, you know, a big uh, body of fiction about it. And there's a lot of popular history, actually. A lot of journalists who were in Vietnam um, during the war wrote um, accounts of it later. And I think it's those popular accounts that really dominate public perceptions um, like your own. Um, and those popular accounts... Um, I think early on um, also sort of um, dovetailed with uh, academic understandings of the war. There was yeah. a lot of overlap. But and they're probably written by the same generation of people. Exactly. Right? Like it's the same cohort of people who are journalists going off and studying the war and then people who are getting an academic interest in what That's the war right. Is. Or there were there were soldiers who fought and after they fought they then wrote um, accounts of the war and there were soldiers who fought and then um, became uh, became journalists and um, you know reflected on their experiences. Um, you're right. That whole generation, I think, the Vietnam War generation, uh, tends to have a very similar uh, understanding of the war. Very much dominated by the political um, situation at the time of the country. Um, so, so what I'm hearing is that I'm not wrong. That like my given uh, 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 narrative of the Vietnam War is 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 just fine. That, that right? Uh, no, it's not just fine. Oh. Uh, but it is. It, it has been dominant. And a, a couple things that I'll say about that um, that old narrative. Um, one. Uh, it was dominated by people who participated in the war, either as soldiers or as reporters or yeah. as anti-war activists. Um, and so that gives a very specific kind of politics um, to their um, approach to the conflict. It, it, it's, it's hard to imagine a pro-war 
movie or uh, a popular book about well, the Vietnam there War. There were, there were. There's a famous uh, movie, a John Wayne movie called The Green Berets. It's, oh, yeah. It's yeah. sometimes seen as the first Vietnam War movie um, that is extremely, I don't know, pro-war, pro-American intervention and yeah. anti-communist. And there's other... Um, but they don't seem to stick in the popular memory as uh, as much as Apocalypse Now does. Yeah, or, The Deer or, Hunter yeah. or, yeah, certainly all the movies that are recognized by the Academy Awards and by yeah. high criticism or these sort of anti-war movies. Um, but in, in any case, what both the pro and the anti-war um, narratives that come out of the era and that are written by people who participated in the war share... Um, is, as I said, they're sort of consumed by the old politics of the war. So they, their description of the war is often uh, figured in such a way to support yeah. a political view. So yeah. they narrate a history that will support the view of the doves or they narrate a history that, that will support the view of the hawks. And yeah. their ultimate intention, uh, their ultimate um, sort of project is those old hawkish, dovish positions and furthering them. So there's a kind of static politics. So when, when you pick up one of these old books, you can kind of tell within probably the first couple pages, oh, this is where this person stood on the political Exactly. And they the will 60s. sort of choose uh, facts and, and cherry pick evidence to sort of support one or the other of those positions. That's one, that's one um, common point that work from that period is extremely politicized. It's yeah. a kind of data politics. Second thing that a lot of that work shares is that it's extremely American-centric. It's extremely U.S.-centric in the sense that um, it sees the Vietnam War essentially as an episode in American history. Yes. It sees um, Americans as the central actors in the conflict. It sees Americans as the biggest, and this sounds very strange to say, but it sees them as the biggest victims mm -hmm. um, and a lot of you know the anti-war Scholarship, for example, really dwells on the suffering of American veterans or the trauma of you know families who had to reabsorb veterans or the general trauma to the American social fabric that resulted from the war. When you think about how the Vietnam War is deployed in everyday culture, when it's talked about in politics, it's about this example of either American hubris or imperial overreach or as the war that the lefties messed up. But it's not. It's always about Americans, right? It, but the, when the, I think of these movies, I don't. I don't remember any you, Vietnamese. Can characters. you think of a full-body Vietnamese character in any of those movies? I think no. Apocalypse Now is one of the best of them. Um, but there's not a single character. I mean, there's not. There's not even a you know a secondary Vietnamese character. Um, and the same goes for the Deer Hunter. Yeah. Um, I think Oliver Stone's, some of his Vietnam movies, although not Platoon, his most famous one, but later he made these movies, uh, Heaven and Earth, which do have Vietnamese characters. Um, but in general, um, and I would actually extend this to the, the recent Ken, Ken Burns documentary about Vietnam, um, they're really dominated by American uh, actions, American characters, the consequences of the war for the U.S. Um, here, uh, well, so let's talk about what, what what's happening today. So we, we we have this this image of the old kind of historians who uh, who were studying the, the Vietnam War from a very politicized bent, mm -hmm. and who mainly just focused on the Vietnam War as something that happened to Americans. So right now we have, prob I'm guessing, like a, a move to make it kind of depoliticized and to to include voices of of people who aren't American. Vietnamese and 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 Cambodians and Laotians and so yeah, you, that's that's exactly right. Um, but it's uh, and I'll I'll 
talk about both of those in reverse order. So yeah. first, the move to uh, what some scholars say, recenter the Vietnamese um, in the war. Um, and, and this is a move that's basically been spearheaded by younger historians of the last um, 25 years, more or less. That's sort of when I got into the game yeah. um, of history. Um, and uh, my colleagues and grad students who work on Vietnam, we all sort of looked at this existing scholarship and said, um, there's something wrong here. That, uh, yes, there were 58,000 Americans who died in the war, but compare that to the one to three million Vietnamese who died yeah. at the war. Do, do you um, remember an aha moment, like w when you were talking with your friends in the hallways, or is it, was this something that, that slowly burbled up over time, this, 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 this distaste with the status quo? Well, um, for me, I mean, I went to grad school uh, in the late 80s, and I went to Vietnam to do language study um, in uh, 1988. Um, and... You know, it was then that I sort of encountered all these people who had experienced the war, but yeah. they were not um, describing the kind of things that Oliver Stone described or that Francis Ford Coppola described. They had a, a very different set of experiences, um, and uh, they were living with the consequences of the war um, in a much more immediate way yeah. than simply the kind of psychological trauma that, that Americans were dealing with. Um, so that was very formative for me, um, but also just... Um, the, the incredible sameness of the existing scholarship, the fact that it wasn't 30% Vietnam-centric scholarship and 70% American-centric scholarship. It wasn't even 80-20. It was something like 95 or 98% of the work on Vietnam about the American experience and 2% about the Vietnamese experience. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, I went to graduate school to study Southeast Asian history. Southeast Asian history as a quite old tradition um, of opposing Eurocentric approaches to Southeast Asia. And here was this big subfield within Southeast Asian history, the history of the Vietnam War, yeah. that had seemed to have totally missed the boat um, yeah. in terms of um, correcting for that. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, the fact that um, Vietnamese suffered so many more casualties seemed like an important uh, factor. The fact that all of the physical destruction of the environment that occurred as a result of, the, of war. It's a massive and horrible, uh, you know, story. Um, uh, which, one which I, as a person interested in the, the history of environment, I, I've never even thought about with respect to the Vietnam well, War. Well, I just think of jungles and then napalm, and then it factors into the American popular perception of the war through Agent Orange, right? Yeah, which you know something about, um, but usually. Uh, you know, the, it's the impact of Agent Orange on the American soldiers in the bases near where the near where the chemicals were dropped, or yes. many years later they have various kind of conditions. Um, but um, you know, the suffering that the Vietnamese um, go through as a result of uh, defoli of chemicals defoliation, but not just Agent Orange. Um, you know, the war is fought on their territory. You know, well over half of the housing stock in the country is destroyed. Um, over half. The number of people who become refugees is incredible. I mean, it's like, you know. You know, you just think about how, about the history of the landscape in which you live. Like when I think about walking through UC Berkeley, uh, you know, there's these these little historical markers. Here's the, here's the big gate that everybody gets photos in. And I'm ju just imagining what it's like to live in Vietnam where those historical markers of everyday life might be what are just footnotes in, in, in an Americanized history of, of the Vietnam War. Right. And the, I think the important thing is to contrast that with um, the U.S., where there is no, there's very little, you know, there's no kind of environmental, physical mark of the war. Yeah. Whereas in that country, 
it's everywhere, right? The environment was was radically scarred um, as a result of the conflict. What, do you remember any particular moments that 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 that, that that you can that you've observed of this happening. Well, you go through some areas, and there's still you know bomb craters, which have now really? turned into um, you know like uh, fish ponds. Um, there are um, uh, you know areas where there was defoliation that um, remain um, you know defoliated areas that are um, you know these sort of blighted um, areas on the landscape. Um, of course, a lot of time has elapsed, and so things have changed. Yeah. Um, but again, what's important for this revisionist historical move is the contrast between the, you know, the, there's all this attention on the U.S., but actually, in terms of the environmental side of the story, everything happened in Vietnam. Um, similarly, just another example, most Americans who fought in Vietnam um, or who experienced Vietnam were there for a tour of 12 months. Yeah. Um, and so they went there, and it was very traumatic, but they left after this one-year period. Most Vietnamese um, who experienced the war, um, you know, basically lived with that conflict for their entire adult lives. The yeah. American uh, intervention happens from 1965 to 1973, the big American intervention. But the, this Vietnamese civil war which undergirds the American intervention, that really starts in 1946 and, and goes up through 1975. It's about 30 years of uninterrupted, more or less uninterrupted conflict. And so people who are born in the 40s or the 50s, their entire life is essentially dominated by this conflict. Again, um, the fact that the historiography nevertheless focuses overwhelmingly on the Americans um, and not on this other population who had much more at stake in the conflict. Yeah. Um, appeared to us uh, in the late 80s and early 90s as a great injustice. And um, um, a lot of us, um, you know, began to do work to try to correct this injustice, um, essentially by studying um, the Vietnamese side of the conflict um, by, and, you know, there's two or three different Vietnamese um, governments. Um, that are involved in the conflict, the communist north, the non-communist south that's allied with the United States. Then there's a southern communist movement. There's some controversy over whether that movement is allied with the north or is independent from the north. Um, but those three kind of major players, right, most of the Vietnamese who fight in the war and who die in the war are aligned with one of those three sides. Um, there have been very little scholarship on that uh, on them. Um, and so my generation of historians and the generation that came after me, my students, um, have really made those um, Vietnamese governments and the people who um, lived under them the subject of their study. Great. And I, so I, I think we'll move on to talking about this, this, this uh, you know, uh, revision of the political story. But I, I want to ask about the, the, the beginning of the, the, the Vietnamese War, because mm -hmm. I think that might be a good lens through which we can see this. So in my naive view okay. of the history of the Vietnam War, it all begins because uh, the, the French are, are controlling uh, uh, what is then called Indochina. Mm -hmm. They lose control of it. Um, there is a bad capitalist government and a, you know, less bad, maybe even good communist government. And uh, us evil capitalists uh, prop up a uh, the repressive uh, 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 bad capitalist government. And slowly, because of that propping up of an undemocratic, bad, unrepresentative uh, government that just aligns with our ideology, get dragged you know, unbeknownst 
into this uh, uh, war, mm-hmm. and that there that the moral force of the war is always on the side of the communists, mm-hmm. and that our uh, intervention was always misguided. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this uh, has this been majorly revised or no? Yeah, you need to take one of my seminars or to read some of the work. <laughs> I'm of, writing my, of my dissertation. Students. That's okay. It won't take that long. Um, <laughs> we can correct you. Um, but yeah, I mean that you, what you've described is basically this orthodox view that's yes. produced by people who who lived through the war. Um, um, and there are many uh, ways to put forward a kind of alternative um, view. And I'll just mention two of them. One is um, to, as opposed to what you did, which was sort of highlight this ideological conflict as, yeah. at, the, as, at the core of the war, um, which is, there's no question that there is an ideological conflict, but there's um, other conflicts as well. And one is a regional conflict. So the war hmm. is, in addition to being a conflict between capitalism and communism, is a com- conflict between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. Um, and uh, North Vietnam and South Vietnam in one way or another, have been fighting with each other since about the 16th century. Really? During the 16th century, there's a, before the 16th century, there's a unified state, and then that state breaks up, and actually a breakaway southern government is formed. It's called the Nguyen uh, state uh, in the 1600s. And between the 1600s and the French arrival in the 1850s, that southern state and that northern state fight a series of wars against each other. There's also um, so, so in my in my view of, of of this war, Vietnam was always a unified country that just got broken apart. But now I'm realizing it's a lot more like England and Scotland, who are perpetually at each other's throats. That's right. They might speak the same language, kind of, but throughout history they go go closer to and, and further away from one another. It's a very common misapprehension that Vietnam has always been. One. Yeah. One of the reasons for that is that the, when the communists win in 1975, they relentlessly push this story that we've always been one. Yeah. It was only the Cold War and the Americans who came in and divided us. Maybe the French divided us earlier. Um, but the communist victory represents a return to this oneness that's always been. Well, again, if you look at this sort of 300 year civil war period from 1560s roughly to 1850, the country's divided, the two sides are at war. Um, and I think more importantly for the for, the, for understanding of the 20th century conflict, um, two different sort of political cultures develop in North and South Vietnam. Hmm. Um, two different dialects develop. Two different kinds of cuisine develop. Yeah. North Vietnam and South Vietnam are very very different culturally. Um, so it is it is quite a, so analogous to the difference between England, England and Scotland. It's not that's, that's you not, can you can tell a South Vietnamese and North Vietnamese by 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 if you listen a to them to, if you listen to speech the yeah. difference between North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese is like the difference between English spoken in the Bronx and English spoken in Dallas. It's, oh wow! It's that it's that obvious. Yeah. Um, and um, but the point about the political culture I think is. Uh, is really important. The political culture in the North, historically, over this long period of time, um, is relatively insular. It's a political culture that looks to China, yeah. the northern neighbor, for a kind of model for, for government and politics. Um, it's a quite conservative government in terms of engaging with the rest of the outside world. It's a quite conservative 
a government in terms of its economic policy. Is the, it is it is it quite Confucian? Or it what? is quite Confucian. Yeah. The northern government is much more Confucian. In the south, I bet they write in Chinese characters and 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 read the classics and take exams. Is, is you do know something about this topic. I know a little. I'm impressed. <laughs> that is true. Um, of course, in the south, they also write in Chinese characters and they read the classics, but um, they they care about it much less. Yeah. Um, they're much less focused on China as a model. In terms of the economy, and here we're talking about pre-19th century history, yeah. it's a much more freewheeling economy in which international trade, maritime trade, plays a big role. South is seen as more cosmopolitan, more open to the West, um, less conservative, more experimental. Um, so if you think about these two different culture slash political cultures, um, they map on in an interesting way to sort of stereotypical understandings of the difference between communist North Vietnam, closed, China-focused, yeah. conservative in various respects, and South Vietnam, which although it also has a reputation for being an American puppet, I think it's a false uh, uh, reputation. Um, but, you know, it's it's not a bad characterization for South Vietnam. It's this kind of cosmopolitan, wide open place, allows all these external forces to come in. Um, and so in some ways... Uh, the 20th century war can be seen as a continuation of a 400-year-old regional conflict um, that, and we haven't really talked about the French colonial period, yeah. it's about a 100-year period. Um, you know, during the French period, I think one could argue that these regional, these existing regional divisions are exacerbated. Um, the In the conventional interpretation, the French come in and they create these divisions. The Cold War then intensifies them. But I think a, a more accurate reading is that these divisions predate the colonial period. The French come in and they exacerbate them. And then the Cold War sort of turned them into um, an ideological contest, hmm. a, you know, global ideological contest. But undergirding that contest um, is this much older um, sort of uh, culture of conflict culture of civil conflict in which Vietnamese are fighting against each other um, to figure out, you know, what kind of political culture is going to dominate this whole place. Yeah. Um, so so my, my naive understanding of the start of the war is that the war starts in the 60s or even in the 70s. But you're telling me it starts in the 60s. Well, you're right if you say it starts in the 1560s. <laughs> so, you know, there is, you could save the phenomenon. But, um, Brandon, that's only, I would say... That's the most radical revisionist version, what I've just yeah. given you, that yeah. the war is really old or yeah. it's based on the old forces. But I think there's a, a less radical version um, of the story, which I, I'll briefly summarize for you. And, and, and that basically says that during the French colonial period, um, which runs from 1850 to about the Second World War. So it's, it's that's only, a long time. That's, that's a couple generations. It's a hundred-year period. Yeah. You know, it's long in some perspectives and short in the others. The British are in India for much longer. The Dutch are in Indonesia for much longer. The French are in Algeria for much longer. The French are in Algeria for much yeah. longer. The uh, Spanish are in the Philippines for much longer. Yeah. So it's in, actually in world comparative terms, French colonialism is actually kind of short. Okay. Um, but um, just to make a complicated story simple, um, in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two a variety of anti-colonial movements emerge. Yeah. Movements that are basically all devoted to overthrowing the French and establishing an independent post-colonial government. 
But um, those anti-colonial movements are not unified. Hmm. One of those movements is the communist movement led by the famous Ho Chi Minh. Who, who, who my understanding was a waiter at, at Versailles during the Treaty of Versailles, uh, right? Is this, was this, is this, is this another that's, false false? partially right. Partially, partially right. right. He was at Versailles and he did submit um, a, a, a petition um, to the Western leaders at Versailles asking for independence for the colonies, but he wasn't a waiter. He wasn't a waiter. He wasn't a waiter at that point. He may have been working as a photo retoucher, um, and he had worked previously. There's some evidence he worked previously as a waiter, actually in New York and Boston. In some accounts, he worked as a waiter at the Parker House Hotel in Boston. Oh wow! But that's not confirmed. That's not confirmed. But so, so we we have we have a a a uh, a, a set of 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 disparate. Uh, anti-colonial movements that are burbling up around the the First World War. Yeah, in the interwar, including period, Ho Chi Minh and the including Ho Chi Minh and Ho Chi Minh's communists. I actually think that his movement should more precisely be called the Stalinist mm. wing of the communist movement because actually there's a variety of leftist anti-colonial movements. There's a quite interesting Trotskyist movement. Um, and there are then uh, conservative nationalist movements, nationalist movements that look to um, Chiang Kai-shek and sort of Chinese nationalism. Um, and there are nationalist movements that I refer to as Republican movements. Um, they are movements that, like, like the others, want to overthrow the French and set up yeah. an independent government. But the post-colonial government that they imagine is looks a little bit like Third Republic France. It's a hmm. democracy. There's a civil society. Um, there's you know all newspapers, and newspapers and, and cafes and all that yeah. stuff. Um, and I would say there's you know four or five. There's also a, a kind of hard right. A series of hard right nationalist movements that look to Japanese militarism, hmm. um, or even uh, the Nazis in the interwar period, the rise of the Nazis and sort of captures the imagination of people on the right in Vietnam. They these these guys, interestingly, they're not colonial collaborators. They want to overthrow the French, but they want to set up their own their yeah a racial you know kind of national socialist style state. Anyway, these anti colonial movements resist the French yeah. during this period, but they also quibble. And fight, and sometimes quite in you know quite bloody-minded way, fight against each other. Yeah. There are periods when they attempt to purge each other. There are periods when they have sort of bloodletting against each other, like normal politics. Like normal politics, yeah. exactly. But you know, a little uglier because of the war, Second World War, and there's you know various kind of destabilizing forces that flood these groups with guns, and there's not good order. Um, but when the Second World War comes and dislodges the French colonial state, that's actually what gets rid of the French. It's not any of these movements. All these yeah. movements are more or less unsuccessful in their efforts. It's the Japanese army comes in 1940, boom, overthrows all of the colonial states in the region. Um, and uh, then, and offers a very unappealing model of 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 of, of how to run a state in its in its place. Nobody, very the, few people. The Japanese, I well, think would want to be a, a a member of the co-prosperity sphere. Well, like I said, there are these right wing nationalist groups. Some of them actually see the Japanese model as a very attractive thing, and hmm. those small uh, uh, groups do collaborate with the Japanese, but they're not big enough um, to to really have popular support. But basically what happens is the Japanese kick out the French when the atomic bomb is dropped on Japan, the Japanese surrender. Yeah. And so there is a power vacuum. The French have been dislodged. The Japanese have retreated to their barracks. Who's going to take power? Um, and what happens is all of these groups from the interwar period rise up yeah. and begin to fight amongst each other to, raise, to, to, to gain power. And 
the war, what we know is the Vietnam War, I would argue um, essentially is the last chapter of this conflict, the conflict which, you know, has its origins in the interwar period um, in which um, competing nationalist visions of a post-colonial Vietnam fight it out. And it seems like from your description of these different camps, of, of, of these different visions of what Vietnam should be, that they're not mutually commensurable, that you can't really... I mean, even the, the 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 Stalinist communists and the Trotskyist communists are going to be at their neck and going to have radically different views of what being a member of the Vietnamese nation should be. Mm. And it probably gets even worse when you get to like Japanese style nationalism versus mm. the, these communist groups. So that 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 this is in part uh, uh, trying to find an acceptable language for politics in the absence of 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 French colonial legitimacy. Yeah, and but I, what I would say is that these different anti-colonial groups, some of them are able to form alliances with each other, and some of them are not. And the Stalinist Ho Chi Minh's group um, is particularly allergic to sharing power. As you'd think for if, they're, if they're Stalinist. As you would think if yeah. they're Stalinist. So like they have no tolerance for the Trotskyists. And yeah. when the Japanese uh, retreat, the first thing the, con the Stalinists do is they kill all the Trotskyists. So the Trotskyists, uh, Again, this seems, it's the fate of Trotskyists yeah, in, to in be a lot of different places. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but the, um, na the nationalist movements in the center or on the right, some of them find that they can work together. And so what ends up forming the state of South Vietnam, which is formed sort of during the late 40s and becomes an autonomous state in 1954, I think that state represents the fusion of this some members of these Republican nationalist mm. movements. There are some neo-traditional Confucian nationalist movements. There are some elements of, I think, the softer right um, that um, say, hey, the, com the, the Stalinists are a so much of a danger to us that we can make common cause with Republicans and with Chiang Kai-shek style nationalists and we'll form this block against them. Um, and then what we know is the Vietnam War is essentially the war of this block, this nationalist block of these various um, movements from the yeah. war period backed by the United States fighting against the Stalinists backed by China and the Soviet Union. Um, so you, that, you, ha you have the, 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 the soup of competing ideologies and politics uh, in the South that are roughly commensurable. They can talk to each other. They can get around a desk with each other and argue about wh where the sewer line should go mm -hmm. up against uh, a block in the North that is incommensurable with their politics. Well, well, yes. And the block in the North, I think, is this is part of its strength. It's much more unified. Yeah. Um, the unif unification is also a product of the unique political culture of Stalinism, right, mm. which doesn't tolerate other parties in any case, doesn't tolerate much in the way of civil society, doesn't tolerate anything much in the way of criticism. In the South, you have all those things. You have, um, you know, a messy civil society. You have, um, uh, you know, a, a, a labor movement. You have independent churches. None of those things exist uh, in the Stalin system in the North. And I think... Those are those differences are part of the explanation for why the North is a more powerful kind of military machine. Hmm. Um, it's not the only reason. There are, there are some other factors, and you know we have to um, I think also consider that Ho Chi Minh is a very brilliant strategist and a very charismatic figure. The South never has a leader with um, the level of charisma and who can uh, attract. Um, the, the kind of popular support from the countryside that Ho Chi Minh does. I mean, as a naive 
history buff. I know mm. who Ho Chi Minh is. I know that he was at the Treaty of Versailles. I could not name another a, a, a leader. So, well, Korea. you know, if you if you knew a little bit, you probably could name Ngo Dinh Diem, D I E M, who's the leader of South Vietnam for the first decade of its existence, mm. fifty four to sixty three. You know, he's on the cover of Time magazine okay. a bunch of times, and uh, Americans call him the Winston Churchill of Asia. He's a famous guy. Um, but in terms of you know charisma and uh, you know political uh, ability, he's he's no match for Ho Chi Minh. But th- that I think um, is often uh, mistranslated. That contrast is mistranslated um, as meaning that um, the North has a lot more popular support from the from the um, you know from the people from the people yeah. than in the South. Because um, that's my view that that, well, there, that, that that whatever's happened in the South is some sort of imposition from 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 uh, uh, meddling Americans, and whatever's happening in the North is authentic. The, the thing is, it's very difficult to gauge popular support, right? The North, as a Stalinist system, never has an election, yeah. never holds a poll, doesn't allow a free press. At, you know, all newspapers and public published materials produced by the government. Um, and we know that the North also establishes a very coercive police state, um, and there's various um, movements of repressive violence against the countryside. So do people follow the North because they love the North or because they're scared or because they're coerced? It's hard to say. Um, we know that this, in the South, there's very mixed levels of support for the government. Um, and there are some people who are loyal and some people who hate the government. We know that there's a lot of people who... Um, hate the Americans in the South. That's another factor mm. that I think we haven't talked about yet. Um, but um, the the American presence is sort of uniformly unpopular. Um, and it's something that, in addition to these other factors that I've mentioned, making the North stronger than the South, it's something that, that helps to undermine the South as well. The American presence, I think, um, is a deeply counterproductive factor in terms of tipping the balance of this conflict in favor of the South, it has the opposite effect. Well, just imagine what would happen in our own divided political uh, 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 landscape if one side was backed by a foreign invader with tanks. You know, well, it probably would It probably would not decrease the temperature of, 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 of the conflict. Well, right? exactly. And the American military at this time is, I think, a very crude instrument to try to fight the kind of war that has to be fought in South Vietnam. It's an anti-guerrilla war. It's a war where you have to sort of surgically be able to distinguish between the guerrillas and the population. American military is not really prepared for this kind of fight. And so there's massive collateral damage, right? That's the euphemism, basically massive killing of Southern civilians who are, you know, side on the side of the American, on the side of the Southern government. That ends up really undermining the legitimacy of the Southern government that's, that's already got these problems, a very ruthless enemy in the North. And the, the fact that it has to hold together this complicated coalition in yeah. the South. Um, well, let's switch gears a little bit because I, I, I feel a little bad, I have to be honest. We've been talking about Vietnamese history for about 30 minutes mm. and we've only been talking about the war. So I've already shown my naivete. Can you tell me a little bit about what Vietnamese history might have uh, to teach me about stuff that's not the Vietnam War? Like what are some 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 big takeaways that that, that you've gotten from your study of, of Vietnamese history? Yeah, um, you know, Vietnam is it's a kind of a cliche uh, in the field that Vietnam is a country, not a war. There's more um, to Vietnamese history than just the war, even though it does seem to have sucked up all the oxygen. Um, just one thing I would say at the outset is to, it's important to recognize how big Vietnam is. I mm. think it's the 10th most populous country in the world. Oh man, and, and just geographically, it extends... 
from uh, north to south quite a bit, which probably means that there's a lot of different agricultural styles there or no? Um, there's different uh, local economies in the southern part of the country. It's much richer, much richer agriculturally than the north. Um, but just the point I want to make is that Vietnam, I think it's about 100 million people now. So it's bigger than France. It's bigger yeah. than England. It's as big, you know, so it's a country of substantial size. Um, moreover, after the war, you get this big diaspora, mm. people fleeing the communist victory. And so sizable Vietnamese populations um, emerge and flourish, really, in the United States, California especially, in Australia, yeah. in England, uh, for other reasons in, in uh, part of the Eastern Bloc. Um, and so, so my point is that um, there are – this is a big place. It's an, it's an old place. It's an old literate place. So there's a lot of sources that go back, you know, 2,000 years. Um, and there are – uh, of course, people in the country are very interested in their own history, but these diaspora communities who are getting trained, uh, the, you know, the intelligentsia is getting trained in Canada and Australia mm. and the U.S., they're interested in the history of their homeland or their parents' homeland in the same way that, you know, Italian-Americans are interested in Italian history, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of um, demand for uh, knowledge about Vietnam courses. You know, I've taught courses on Vietnamese history for twenty, almost twenty-five years at Cal. Um, they're always filled up with students of Vietnamese heritage, mm. um, and um, so um, you know, this is not the, Vietnamese history is not the history of a small place that doesn't have uh, stakeholders in these big sort of centers of academic learning. It, yeah. It's a big place and there are people who are interested in it all throughout Europe, the Americas, Australia, et cetera. Um, so then your question is, so what are some of the big topics of that history other than the war? Well, um, for the modern period, for the, you know, 20, for the 20th century, um, the big story, the story that needs explaining um, is, and this, uh, alas, does come back to the war a little bit, um, is the success of the communists. Mm. Um, so the communists win the war in 75. They, they take over the country. They rule the country up until today. Uh, today, Vietnam is one of only, I think, four or five countries ruled by a communist party. I remember when I went, I was struck by uh, the the communist iconography Hammers, hammers and sickles yeah. and mausoleums. Yeah, I mean, Cuba, China, North Korea, Vietnam, um, even Laos, I think, has disbanded its communist party now. Um, so that, you know, for historians, that is something that begs explanation. Why is it? that in this place, first, the communists take power. Mm. I think it's worth pointing out that in the region, Southeast Asia, which is made up of about 11 countries, communist movements emerge roughly the same time in the interwar period everywhere in Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand. They fight against the colonial powers. They struggle against domestic rivals, mm. non-communist nationalist rivals. And in every other country, um, the communists lose. Yeah. They are defeated by non-communist nationalists. And in the post-colonial period, it's the non-communist nationalists who inherit the state and lead the country into the future. Vietnam is the one exception um, where the communists win that battle. Now, it's a very elongated battle. It takes until 1975, right? Um, but, um, you know, I think a lot of attention in Vietnamese history uh, now is devoted to trying to figure out that question. What is it about Vietnam that Elevated, elevates the communists that allows them to take power where all these in all these neighbor countries it doesn't happen. And is that you know one of the things that struck me about going to Vietnam was that despite the communist iconography, it still felt like a 
capitalist country. Like it felt was is there was there a big difference? What's at stake in this when we look backwards? Was there a big difference in the uh, comparative development of say Malaysia or Indonesia uh, and and that of Vietnam? Given that the Vietnamese were 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 ruled by 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 uh, communists or or no? Well, yeah, Viet, the the status of Vietnam today is it's a little more complicated than what I um, the, the, describe it simply as a communist country. Okay, so in what sense today is Vietnam as a communist country? It's communist in the sense that it's ruled politically by this party that's mm. ruled it since 1954. Yeah. Um, and that has Do people still have party ID cards? People still have party ID cards, and the party is still actually very successful in recruiting talent. Hmm. Okay, so young people who um, want to rise in society, who want to be—they don't go to grad school. school; they go go to the party. You got to go to the party school. Yeah. It, but it's a, it's a grad school is not a bad analogy. I think a better analogy is business school. If you, hmm. you know, the kind of people here who would go to business school because yeah. they want to be the masters of the universe. They learn, they learn the, uh, the, the appropriate rituals to, they, to, to they, get into the, the nests, nests of power. Exactly. They develop the networks. Yeah. They develop the kind of cultural capital. Um, so the Communist Party functions in that way. Um, and it, it it's what's unchanged is it doesn't allow any other party still. Okay, So that is really continuous. But what is different is that um, with the downfall of the Soviet Union in the late 80s and with um, – the reforms in China um, of Deng Xiaoping, uh, the Vietnamese uh, realized that they couldn't have a communist economy anymore. Hmm. Um, and so um, in, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, they introduced a really radical new policy called renovation. And renovation basically says, OK, we're going to have a market economy. Yeah. Um, now, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a distorted market economy. It's a market economy in which the old rulers of the communist economy quickly transition to being these new kind of red capitalists, <laughs> a little bit like China. Yeah. Um, and they uh, privatize a lot of the resources of the state in the transition. It's a very kind of ugly transition. Um, but they navigate it quite successfully, um, such that today Vietnam resembles China in the fact that you've got this extremely closed, coercive, totalitarian um, government yeah. sitting atop a kind of explosively productive capitalist economy, an economy that's witnessed sort of 7 to 8% annual growth rates for about 20 years. I mean, you can tell when I went to the country, I was shocked by, there was a feeling of of, of energy it's and a, of prosperity and of activity. It's amazing. The the, the place is so lively and mm. so much construction and yeah. so much change. You know, for someone like me who went there right before the reforms, um, the change is just mind-blowing. When I first went to Vietnam to study the language in 1988, you literally felt like you had gotten in a time machine when you showed up in the country. Um, you know, big cities with no cars, only bicycles. Oh, wow. Um, no communications, almost no communication networks. No one had phones. This was, of course, before the internet. But you know, I would go to Vietnam and I wouldn't communicate with anyone for three months, anyone outside of the country. And today it's cell phones and Wi-Fi. And, exactly. And, and, and buses. The and changes computers. have been telescoped and accelerated in, in an amazing fashion. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have been pulled up out of poverty and there's the, uh, very abruptly in one generation the development of this kind of interesting middle class. But, you know, as you can imagine, there's also all kinds of negative social consequences. There's great inequity now. Um, there's great risk to the environment now. Um, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a country and an economy where the powerful, because the legal system is quite... Um, corrupt and undeveloped, the powerful have many, many advantages over the powerless. Mm. It's a quite, 
it's a quite brutal place, actually, a place yeah. where, you know, people, the haves can really lord it over the have-nots. Um, and there's very little social safety net. There's very little, because civil society has been policed and sort of policed almost you know, out of existence, um, people have very little recourse when they're getting pushed around by the powerful. So it's, you know, this is not the communist Vietnam of um, the 50s and 60s. It's not a Vietnam that Bernie Sanders would endorse. No, although those guys are have been quite slow to come around and see it that way, mm. right? And initially, I thought Vietnam got a pass um, from the Western left um, for its you know, kind of chronic human rights abuses um, in a way that other big human rights abusers wouldn't get because of the legacy of the war. It's, it's another one of the kind of negative consequences, I think, of the war is that Americans still think that, well, the government, they won the war, they beat the American imperialists, they must be the good guys. Um, they must be the, you know, the mice. Their hands the can't elephants. be bloody. Whereas, again, this is one thing that really changes if you spend time there and you hang out with intellectuals and you realize that the government there is a, is a very repressive um, and conservative force and in many ways reactionary force. Um, and um, all of the sort of values of anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism that the war should be fought with, that's not what this government's about. This government is about control and growth. Um, and, you know, it's very similar, again, to the sort of the Chinese model. Great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. If any of the listeners would like to uh, uh, read more about Vietnamese history or go get some resources about it that are less naive than me, where would you point them to? Well, they can go to uh, Amazon and look up my name. They can read my stuff. Um, and uh, you mentioned earlier that there's a journal that I founded about 10 years ago called the Journal of Vietnamese Studies. Mm -hmm. That has been a site for the publication of a lot of this new post-war revisionist research, Journal of Vietnamese Studies, published by UC Press. You can get that online, and um, I think that's a good place to start. Great. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Brandon. I really enjoyed it. 